Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed your, your lunch. Uh, I'm about to introduce our lunch speaker, but before I do so, I'd uh, like to make another announcement. We have a, some advanced copies of a brand new Cato policy analysis, the first to come from the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. It's by former Federal Reserve economist Dan Thornton, who's uh, somewhere in the room. It's called Requiem for QE. There are only a few of these around, so if you're interested, you can grab one out in the hall. Our lunch speaker today, Claudio Barrio, is the head of the BIS's Monetary and Economics Department. Previously, he was an economist at the OECD, and before that, a lecturer at Oxford University where he obtained both his DPhil and his BA in uh, philosophy, politics, and economics. Or is it politics, philosophy, and economics? It doesn't matter very much, does it? <laughs> the Economist has described Claudio as one of the world's uh, most proactive and interesting monetary economists. Well, <clears throat> I happen to be one of those people who absolutely can't stand the word proactive. However, having read many of Claudio's papers, I don't hesitate to agree that his is some of the most interesting and indeed some of the best work that has been done in monetary economics in the last decade. So please welcome Claudio Barrio. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure for me to be here. But I have to say that after such a glowing introduction, I, I feel a little bit embarrassed. But <clears throat> in any case, um, in my presentation today, I would like to revisit and question three deeply held beliefs that underpin current monetary policy received wisdom. The first is that it is appropriate to define equilibrium or natural interest rates as those rates that are consistent with output at potential and with stable prices or inflation in any given period, what's known also as the Vixellian natural rate. Second, that it is appropriate to think of money or monetary policy more generally as neutral over long-term horizons that are relevant for policy. I'm thinking of 10, 20, or even beyond. Third, that it is appropriate to set policy on the presumption that deflations are always and everywhere very costly sometimes even to regard them as a kind of red line that once crossed heralds the abyss. Based on these considerations, I will, provide, I will draw two conclusions. First of all, I will provide a different, best regarded as complementary interpretation of the trend decline in real interest rates that we have seen since at least the 90s, and argue that this is at least in part a disequilibrium phenomenon, that is something which is not consistent with lasting and the key word here is indeed lasting, monetary and financial stability and macroeconomic stability, therefore. And second, I will suggest that we need to make adjustments to current monetary policy frameworks in order to have monetary policy play a more active, not proactive, role in preventing financial instability and its huge macroeconomic costs. This calls for more symmetrical uh, policy during financial booms and busts, or what I would call financial cycles leaning more deliberately against financial booms, and easing less aggressively 
and above all, less persistently during financial busts, with other policies really taking much of the burden and playing a much bigger role. Now, let me discuss the five points in turn. I will necessarily have to be very brief, uh, but these themes have been developed in more detail in the latest two annual reports, and of course, in the research that with colleagues we have been carrying out at the BAS for many years now. Now, I realize, can I, I see two slides here, so. One is coming, and one is present. And one, okay, so this one is the present. So, I've just gone through this. <laughs> so, okay, let me take each of the five points in turn, and then talk about equilibrium or natural rates. First, a few facts. Interest rates, short and long, in nominal and inflation adjusted or real terms, have been exceptionally low and for exceptionally long time, regardless of benchmarks. Take policy rates first. In both nominal and real terms, they are now even lower than at the peak of the great financial crisis. And in real terms, they have been negative for even longer than during the great inflation of the 1970s. Consider next long-term rates. Between December 2014 and end two May 2015, on average, no less than around $2 trillion worth of long-term sovereign debt, much of it issued in the euro area, was trading at negative yields. And at their trough, French, German, and Swiss sovereign yields were negative out of respective 5, 9, and 15 years. Such negative nominal rates are unprecedented. And all this has been happening even as global growth has not been far away from historical averages, so that the wedge between growth and interest rates at the global level is very large. Now, how should we think of these market rates and of their relationship to equilibrium rates? Both the prevailing perspective, by which I mean the one which is shared by the saving Latin, for instance, the secular stagnation hypothesis, and the one I'm offering here, agree about how market rates are determined. They are determined by a combination of central bank and market participants' actions. Central banks set the nominal short-term rate, and they influence the nominal long-term rate through signals of their future policy or their direct purchases of assets. Market participants, in turn, adjust their portfolios based on their expectations of central bank policy, on their views about uh, other factors that are driving long-term rates, on their attitude towards risk and various balance sheet constraints. Now, given nominal interest rates, actual inflation is the, uh, determines exposed real rates, and expected inflation determines ex-ante real rates. But how can we tell? How can we tell whether market rates are at their equilibrium level from a macroeconomic perspective? That is, whether they are consistent with sustainable, sustainable good economic performance. The answer is that if they stay at the wrong level for long enough, something bad will happen leading to an eventual correction. But what is that this something bad? And it is here that the two perspectives that I would like to contrast today differ. In the prevailing perspective, it is the behavior of inflation that provides the key signal. If there is excess capacity, inflation will fall. If there is overheating, it will rise. This corresponds to what is often called the Vixalian natural rate. That is the rate that equates output, uh, demand, and supply at, at full employment. The perspective developed here suggests that this view may be too narrow. Another possible key signal is the buildup of financial imbalances, by which I mean strong increases in credit and in asset prices, particularly property prices, 
on the back of aggressive risk-taking that historically have been the main cause of the episodes of serious banking crisis with huge macroeconomic costs. These are the kinds of financial booms and busts or financial cycles that I mentioned earlier. I'm thinking, for example, of what happened in Japan, what happened in the Nordic countries, late 80s, early 90s, what happened in Asia in the mid-1990s, and if you look at the United States, what happened ahead of the great financial crisis, and if you go further back in history, what happened ahead of the Great Depression. Specifically, if one believes that low interest rates can contribute to financial instability by encouraging booms and busts, as many people do, and I would say that it's hard to think otherwise since monetary policy operates largely by influencing credit, asset prices, and risk-taking, as a lot of evidence confirms, and if one also believes that financial instability has long-lasting, if not permanent, effects on output, and I will come back to that, then it is hard to regard a given interest rate as an equilibrium or natural rate if it generates financial instability, even if, even if inflation is stable and low. This is partly an issue of the time frame envisaged for the disequilibria to cause damage. In the prevailing view, it's relatively short, as it focuses on output deviations from potential at business cycle frequencies. But given the way that we as economists and, pol and the policymakers measure it, it has a frequency of about between eight to 10 years. In the view that I'm offering you to you today, it's the, this time frame is much longer, as it focuses on the potentially larger output fluctuations at financial cycle frequencies. Financial cycles, which if measured through credit and property prices, for instance, since the early 1980s have had a frequency of between 16 to a duration of between 16 to 20 years. Seen from this angle, the statement one often hears from the proponents of the savings glut and secular stagnation hypothesis, that is, that the equilibrium or natural rate is very low, even negative, and that this rate, this very rate, generates financial instability is somewhat misleading, for it does not so much reflect an inherent tension between the equilibrium or natural rate on the one hand and financial stability on the other, but the incompleteness of the uh, analytical frameworks used to define and to measure the concept, particularly frameworks that typically exclude endogenous financial instability and its economic costs. What I have said applies equally to the short-term rate, which the central bank sets, and to the long-term rates, because there is no guarantee, no guarantee that the combination of central bank and market participants' decisions will guide long-term rates towards their equilibrium levels. Just like any other asset price, long-term rates may mis misalign for, for very long, except, of course, that their impact is going to be much more pervasive because, of course, they underpin the pricing of all assets. Importantly, the point about how to think of equilibrium rates is not purely semantic. It has important implications for monetary policy. The reason is that there is a consensus, I would say not that all agree, but I think there is a consensus that the central bank's task is precisely that of setting the policy rate so as to track the natural or equilibrium rate. And I will come back to this later. By the way, I forgot to say that I have quite a number of graphs which are supporting the points that I'm making today, but given that the time available, I will let you look at them uh, with uh, at leisure after my presentation. So let me move to my second point, which is the notion of uh, monetary neutrality. Now, the previous analysis already suggests that monetary neutrality is problematic. 
The reason is that there exists a large body of evidence, empirical evidence, indicating that the cost of financial or banking crisis in particular are very long-lasting, if not permanent. That is, growth may return to its previous long-term trend, but output remains below its previous long-term trajectory, so that a permanent gap opens of something like 6 to 10 percentage points of GDP. So as long as it is acknowledged that monetary policy can fuel financial booms, and their subsequent busts, it is logically dubious to argue that it is neutral. More recent evidence uncovered by BIS research confirms and casts further light on this point. It does so by investigating the mechanisms through which financial booms and busts cause so much lasting damage. Specifically, a lot of attention has been given, quite rightly, I would say, to the demand side of the equation. That is how debt overhangs and a broken financial system tend to weaken aggregate demand. Our work, by contrast, has also looked into the supply side of the equation, which I think is just as important. In particular, it has explored the nexus between financial booms, resource misallocations, and productivity. And by examining over 20 countries in a period of over 30, 30 years, we produced three findings. First of all, financial booms tend to undermine productivity growth as they occur. For a typical credit boom, we're talking about over one-third of a percentage point per year as a kind of lower bound. Second, a considerable chunk of this reflects the shift of factors of production, we measure it through labor, to lower productivity sectors, about three-quarters of this. Think, for example, of shifts into temporarily bloated construction sectors or even the financial sector. The rest of the impact is the result of productivity, which is common across sectors, like, for example, due to the common component of aggregate capital uh, accumulation or total factor productivity technology. Third, the impact of, impact of misallocations that occur during the boom uh, is more than twice that. Um, well, it's much larger if a crisis follows. In the past, in the five years that follow a particular crisis, in fact, it's about 0.7 percentage points per GDP. And this is true even if you control separately in the regressions for the occurrence of a crisis. So that if you take a five-year boom and a five-post-crisis period together, the cumulative impact is of the order of about six percentage points um, in productivity. Now, I'm not asking you to take these numbers at face value, but I do ask you to think that this is really a material effect, whatever the specific number is. In addition to the implication for the notion of monetary neutrality, the role of misallocations highlights three additional points. First, it suggests that it is worth broadening the mechanisms behind hysteresis to include those that work through resource misallocations during both the booms and the busts, so that the allocation of credit rather than just the overall amount is quite important. Second, it stresses the limitations of persistently expansionary monetary policy in tackling financial busts. It is not just that agents wish to deliverage or that the transmission mechanism is broken because the banks are not working well, but easy monetary policy cannot undo the resource misallocations that took place during this phase. It cannot, and presumably should not, bring back to life adult cranes when there is an oversupply of buildings, for example. Put differently, not all output gaps are born equal and hence amenable to the same remedies. During financial busts, after the financial system has been stabilized, this is a critical crisis management stage, so phase, removing the obstacles that hold back growth is key. This means facilitating balance sheet repair and implementing structural policies. 
All this highlights the need for macro models, and this is my final and third point, to go beyond the one good standard benchmark. The one good workhorse model leaves out too much of first order importance. It's a little bit like, or at least it risks throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Now, let me now consider the cost of deflations. And I think this is something which is, I guess, close to your heart. Um, is deflation always and everywhere very costly for output? Now, this is indeed the premise that seems to have underlain monetary policy for quite some time now. In fact, if one looks at the empirical evidence, however, this does not seem to be the case. Empirical work, some of it carried out at the BIS, had already reached this conclusion a few years back, well before the crisis, leading to the distinction between good and, and bad deflation, something on which um, uh, George has also extensively worked. In a more comprehensive and systematic study we carried out this year, we confirmed and extended this conclusion. What did we do? Well, we used a newly constructed data set that spans more than 140 years, covers up to 38 economies, and includes also equity and house prices as well as debt for as many periods and as many countries as possible. We then used various techniques to examine across monetary regimes the link between deflations and output growth measured in per capita terms and the relative impact of deflation and asset price declines. We reach three basic conclusions. First, before controlling for the behavior of asset prices, we find only a weak association between deflations and growth. The Great Depression is the main exception, which confirms the previous findings in the literature. Second, we find a stronger link with asset price declines, and controlling for them further weakens the link between deflations and output growth. Indeed, the link disappears in a statistical significant sense, even in the Great Depression. And finally, we, do, we find no evidence of a damaging interplay between debt and uh, price deflation, Fisherian sort of deflation, Fisherian debt deflation. But we do find evidence of a damaging interplay between private sector debt, on the one hand, and property prices, we measure it through house prices, on the other, especially in the post-war period. Now, some might argue, and some have argued, that the recent Japanese experience contradicts this. But in fact, if you look closer, it doesn't. The key is to adjust for demographics and to use per working age population as your measure of output or growth. On this basis, Japan did very badly in the 1990s when deflation had not yet set in, when asset prices were collapsing, and when the balance sheets of financial institutions had not been repaired. But it did comparatively well in the 2000s, once the banking system got fixed, and in fact, paradoxically, deflation set in, so that the central bank had lost control over the real interest rate. Let me just give you some figures comparing 1991 to 2000, that phase, and 2000-2013, but the cutoff doesn't really matter so much. So Japan growth in per capita terms, or even in headline terms, was about 0.8-0.9% per year in the first period. But in working, and also in the second, but in per working age population terms, it increased from 1% to 1.6% in the second period. And while Japan underperformed the United States in the first period, it outperformed it by a wide margin in the second. Japan actually grew at a cumulative growth of 20% uh, 20 
and the US 11% during that period. Now, how should we interpret these results? I think they are consistent with the distinction between supply-driven and demand-driven deflations. Supply-driven deflations depress prices, but also boost output. In this sense, they are quote-unquote good. Demand-driven depress both prices and output, and in this sense, they are bad. And these results are also consistent with the different size and nature of the falls in the price level and asset prices. Those in the price level tend to be much smaller and are essentially redistributional in nature. Those in asset prices tend to be much larger and are at least perceived to be as non-redistributional. From this viewpoint, there are grounds to believe that an important chunk of the secular disinflationary forces that we have seen since the 1990s have been of the good variety. That is, that they have reflected, to a considerable extent, the globalization of the real economy, as well as possibly technological change. Think in particular of the integration of China and former communist countries into the global trading system. This has surely made labor and goods markets much more contestable, eroding producers' pricing power and labor's bargaining power, and reducing the risk of upward wage and price spirals. Indeed, BIS research has found evidence which is consistent with this hypothesis. We have found that the role of global factors has increased at the expense of that of domestic factors in driving both wages and prices. Now, from a policy perspective, the results suggest that it may be worth rebalancing the policy focus away from exclusive attention to deflation threats towards financial cycle threats. Now, let me put this together and then provide a, what I would consider a complementary interpretation for the well-known fall in real interest rates we have seen since the 1990s. Now, from this perspective, this decline is not just an equilibrium phenomenon, but in part a disequilibrium one. According to the prevailing interpretation, central banks and market participants have been pushing short and long-term real interest rates towards their equilibrium or Vixelian level which is in turn determined by deep exogenous forces such as technology, demographics, or income distribution. According to the interpretation I'm offering here, it affects in part, let me stress in part, asymmetrical monetary policy over successive financial and business cycles. To wit, global disinflationary forces, globalization and the like, as I mentioned before, keep a lid on inflation. Monetary policy fails to lean against unsustainable financial booms, Booms and busts cause long-term economic damage. Policy responds very aggressively and, above all, very persistently to the bust, sowing the seeds of the next problem. Over time, this imparts a downward bias in interest rates and an upward bias to, to debt, as reflected in the continuous rise in the debt-to-GDP ratio globally that we have seen. Maybe I'll just show you one graph, which is this one. You see here how interest rates have been trending down and how, at the global level, the ratio of debt to GDP has been going up. Now, over time, also this contributes to a kind of debt trap. That is, policy runs out of ammunition, and it becomes harder to raise interest rates without causing economic damage, owing to the accumulation of the debt and owing to some of the real economy distortions that I was mentioning before. This amounts to a new form of time inconsistency, probably even more insidious than the one we're used to in the context of inflation. The bottom line is that over sufficiently long horizons, low interest rates, to some extent, are self-validating. Too low rates in the past are one reason, of course not the only reason,
for such low rates today. In other words, policy rates are not simply passively reflecting some deep exogenous forces. They're also shaping uh, or helping to shape the economic environment policy makers take as given or as exogenous when tomorrow becomes today. Here, the international monetary and financial system plays, plays a key role. Uh, let's see, where is it? Um, yeah. And uh, this goes back to some of the things that John Taylor mentioned today. For successive crises need not occur in the same country, although sometimes they have. Low rates in countries that are fighting a financial bust may induce problems elsewhere. Policymakers try very hard but get little traction because the transmission mechanism is broken. As a result, foreign currency borrowing in international currencies surges outside the country of origin, influencing directly financial conditions there. There has been a huge increase in dollar credit outside the United States. But more importantly, the exchange rate depreciation by default becomes the key transmission mechanism. This, of course, induces unwelcome exchange rate appreciation in countries that may also be in a bus or at different points in their business cycles, so that as this appreciation is resisted, easing begets easing. This helps to explain why policy rates appear unusually low for the world as a whole, regardless of benchmarks, and why we have been seeing signs of the buildup of dangerous financial imbalances in countries less affected by the crisis. This means emerging market economies, including some of the largest, but also some advanced economies that were not affected by the crisis. So that if serious financial strains did materialize, spillbacks to the rest of the world could spread weakness across the globe. And we have a whole chapter in our latest annual report that deals with this. A few words about the adjustments of monetary frameworks, and, and then I will conclude. Now, this analysis suggests that it would be important to adjust monetary policy frameworks to take financial booms and busts systematically into account. This amounts to putting in place more symmetrical policies across financial booms and busts, leaning more deliberately against financial booms, even if near-term inflation stays low and stable or is, remains below objectives, and easing less aggressively and, above all, less persistently during financial busts. Taken together, these adjustments should help reduce the risk of a persistent easing bias that I mentioned earlier with the consequence of uh, risk for the global economy. Now, there are at least three typical and I should say well-founded objections to such adjustments, but I do not regard any of them as a showstopper. The first is that it's hard to identify financial imbalances in real time. This is true, but we now have a whole apparatus which is predicated on the very assumption that that can be done. These are, of course, macroprudential frameworks. Moreover, Monetary policy benchmarks are also themselves very hard to measure. Think of output gaps or of NIRUs or even ex the relevant expectations. We have simply forgotten this because they have become very familiar concepts. And this is precisely re the reason why the behavior of inflation ends up being the deciding factor when estimating where uh, potential output is, where estimating where output gaps are, so that you revise your estimates in the light of what happens to inflation. This is what happened very much ahead of the financial crisis, and I think is a reason why it is so dangerous. Now, in fact, we have shown that if you use financial cycle information, by which I mean credit growth and property prices, you can actually get better measures of potential output in real time than those that are normally used in policy frameworks. The second objection is that it is better to rely on macroprudential policies and leave monetary policy to focus on inflation, the so-called separation principle. But to my mind, this, is, this would be too imprudent. Monetary policy has a limited reach, and even if it, where it has been actively used, particularly in emerging market economies, it has not prevented the emergence of financial imbalances. 
And so there is a certain tension at the end of the day in pressing on the accelerator and the brake at the same time, given that macroprudential policies operate very much in the same way as monetary policy does, by affecting credit conditions, by affecting asset prices, and by affecting risk-taking. The third objection is that the proposed strategy is not consistent with inflation objectives because it requires too much tolerance of persistent deviations of inflation from target, which could in turn undermine the central bank credibility. True, this raises serious communication challenges, but two responses are possible. First, it is not clear that central banks have exploited all the flexibility that current mandates, the current frameworks allow. Very often these frameworks allow you to uh, accept deviations, persistent deviations from target, depending on what are the factors driving it. The failure fully to use this flexibility reflects perceived trade-offs of costs and benefits, and of course not least the costs of deflation, or perceived costs of deflation, which, as I mentioned earlier, are not consistent with historical record. Second, if mandates are seen as too constraining, the room for maneuver, revisiting them should not be taboo. After all, they are means to an end. That said, the analytical lens through which one interprets how the economy works matters much more than the mandates. I think it's easy to see how, for instance, adding an explicit financial stability mandate could actually make matters worse, and I could have a number of examples for that. So that, to my mind, the first priority is to use the existing room for maneuver to the full. Mandates could be revisited, but only as a last resort. So let me conclude. There are good reasons to revisit questions, or to question, three deeply, believe, three deeply held beliefs underpinning current monetary policy frameworks and received wisdom. First, defining the equilibrium or natural interest rate purely in terms of the equality of actual and potential output and with price stability in any given period is too narrow an approach. An equilibrium rate should also be consistent with sustainable financial and macroeconomic stability. And here I highlighted the role of financial booms and busts. Second, money or monetary policy is not neutral over long-term horizons relevant for policy, be up to 20 if not be, uh, years or if not beyond. This is so precisely because it contributes to financial booms and busts, which give rise to long-lasting, if not permanent, economic costs. And here I highlighted the neglected impact of resource misallocations on productivity growth. Third, deflations are not always and everywhere costly in terms of output. The evidence indicates that the link comes largely from the Great Depression, and even then it disappears if one controls for the behavior of asset prices, particularly property prices. Here I highlighted the cost of asset prices and the distinction between supply-driven and demand-driven deflations. From this, I drew two conclusions. First, the long-term declining real interest rates since at least the 1990s is in part a disequilibrium phenomenon, one that is not consistent with lasting financial, macroeconomic, and monetary stability. Here I highlighted the role of asymmetrical monetary policy response to financial booms and busts which induces an easing bias over time. And finally, there is a need to adjust monetary policy frameworks to take financial booms and busts systematically into account. This, in turn, would avoid the easing bias and the risk of a debt trap. Here, I highlighted that it is imprudent to rely exclusively on macroprudential policies to constrain financial imbalances. Macroprudential policy must be part of the answer, but cannot be the whole answer. Now, of course, I'm fully aware that questioning deep-seated beliefs is a risky business, and I do not pretend to have all the answers. But I do believe that it is essential to explore these beliefs and to have a debate. The stakes for the economic profession and for the global economy are simply too high. 
And as Mark Twain once famously said, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It is what you know for sure that just ain't so. Thank you so much. Thank you, Claudio. Uh, we have some time for questions. I'll, I'll just interject that that, uh, that quote about uh, things we know that ain't so, I think so many people have claimed to be the source of it. I'm thinking I might claim it for myself. Uh, but I think I've heard it attributed to Twain, Will Rogers, uh, Artemis Ward, oh. and at least one other person. So who was the one who came first then? Well, nobody knows. Turkish. Nobody knows. They probably <laughs> somebody that we never heard of, and all the others stole it. <laughs> uh, we have time for questions at uh, about 10 minutes worth, so uh, the usual rules apply. And George Tavlas has one. Thank you, Claudio. Uh, in your uh, presentation, you took a, a fairly benign view of deflation. Uh, from the perspective of the Eurozone, uh, I have a, a little different view. First of all, uh, low inflation, zero inflation, or even negative inflation, as we've been experience, experiencing, makes it very difficult for countries that have uh, relatively high debt-to-GDP ratios to get out of the debt, uh, debt trap because the denominator of the ratio goes down with deflation, and so it makes, makes things much more uh, difficult than otherwise it would have been. And I can point uh, into that, in that regard to the experience of the Britain during the 1920s. Who, well, throughout the 1920s, the UK ran primary fiscal surpluses, and yet they saw their debt-to-GDP ratio go up because they had deflations. That's point number one. Point number two, a crucial element, and maybe you should draw a distinction between fixed and floating exchange rate regimes in this regard, but point number two is that the Eurozone, uh, the uh, countries that have been in crisis, have had external deficits, large external deficits. To uh, overcome those fiscal de uh, external deficits, they need to regain competitiveness. How do you gain competitiveness easily if the average inflation rate in your single currency area is zero? That means that for you, for one particular country, be it Italy, be it uh, Spain, Portugal, or Greece, to improve their external competitiveness against the other Eurozone uh, members have to go undergo deflation which means contractionary policies. It makes things much more difficult. Um, uh, thanks for the comment. Uh, let me be very, very, very clear, and this is something that we, uh, we don't do at the BIS, is just to talk about specific economies and the specific monetary policies of those economies. So I don't want to take um, a particular view on, uh, on the Eurozone. Um, in the following sense, it is quite clear that if you are looking at what happens in your country, you have to take a stand on how much of it is supply-driven, how much of it is demand-driven, and in order to calibrate the policy. And this is all the only thing that I would like you to take away from this, is that, first of all, there is no blanket reason why deflations are so costly. And secondly, it will depend on the circumstances, on the factors that are driving them. So there is no way that a central bank can avoid taking a stand on what are the factors driving disinflation or deflation before deciding how to calibrate the policy. Um, apart from that, it's, it's clearly true that the, the more uh, prices fail to, to adjust, 
the more you will have to have adjustments in, in, other, in, other, in other parts of the system, including wages and the like. Um, but to the extent that you have price adjustments relative to others, of course, they can also increase your competitiveness. But at the point that you made is, is quite right. On the issue of debt, deflation, and, and the like, I think that if, if you just look at the historical data across a number of countries, you will find that just given the range also of price changes and the like, and the likely range of price changes that we might see in the future, it is not so much really the falls in, in, uh, in the goods and service deflators uh, that matter, but it is much more the asset price deflations and their interaction with debt that matters. I mean, there is no way that you would get a different message, I think, if you look closely at the historical record. And all I'm basically saying is that we need to rebalance attention. I use the term rebalancing. I didn't say that you have to go from zero to one, but rebalance the, the, uh, how policy is set to pay more attention to these financial cycle threats than at present. If, if I could, I'd like to say something, because I've got a, a dog in this fight. Uh, <laughs> Um, in answer to the same questions. Uh, well, if, let's suppose countries uh, all have zero inflation, and the question is how can uh, one of these countries compete more effectively? Uh, the answer is you become more productive, and then you have deflation. But the point is that if it's productivity-driven, it's not contractionary. Prices, your prices are getting lower because you're producing goods at lower unit costs. That's how you compete. And in fact, it's how people try to compete all the time, except central banks have a tendency artificially to prevent it from this general competition from manifesting itself in, in general declines in prices. Anyway, it's much different from, as, as Claudio said, a, a, a situation where deflation is driven by lack of spending or demand. That's contractionary. On the debt, I think we'd all agree that an anticipated deflation poses no problem because it will be built into the interest on the rate on the debt. But what about unanticipated deflation that's, again, productivity-driven? Well, forward-looking agents, knowing that the price level would have fallen, let's just say they did, uh, but also knowing that real productivity is going up, it's not clear they would have negotiated for a different nominal interest rate. So you would be in the same world. The usual arguments about why deflation are bad Almost all of them are valid for demand-driven deflation, and pretty much all of them do not go through when the cause of the deflation is supply-driven, and I wish all economists would think more about this. Let me just add something which I think is important. I didn't have much time to elaborate on this, but when I was talking that not all recessions are equal and amenable to the same remedies, I think that part of the problem, what we have seen following the so-called Great Recession, is that, uh, at least in some jurisdictions, um, the authorities were slow in repairing the financial system. And that basically meant that a lot of the pressure was put on monetary policy in a context in which precisely monetary policy was going to have a limited effect, at least through domestic channels. And there has been a risk, and I think it has happened, that monetary policy, in the context of what we have seen post a great financial crisis and the like, has been overburdened. And some of the problems that we're seeing nowadays and some of the risks that have been building up in the global economy following the great financial crisis at the global level, not so much in the specific jurisdictions that are uh, doing this, I think are the result of the imbalanced policy mix that followed the crisis. 
all the way in the back. That was the first hand I saw. I don't know whether it was the first one that went up, but it's the first I saw. Right in the middle of the row was the first one I saw. Was that David back there? Who's that? No. I'm David Beckworth. What is David? <laughs> yes, David. it is. Um, <clears throat> in real time, it might be hard to distinguish between this benign deflation and then the other kind. There's probably other indicators you could look at. So maybe on an operational level, wouldn't it be easier to just stabilize demand and let benign deflation emerge on its own if there's productivity gains? So the same amount of spending gets allocated differently as productivity changes. And if you're stabilizing demand, by definition, you've prevented the bad type of deflation. I mean, the, the other suggestion I saw was we look at, you know, macroprudential regulations and all this other kind of tinkering around. But a real simple approach in my mind would be simply to stabilize demand and allow prices to develop as technology goes and, and, and other developments. Um, well, I, I think this, this would take too long, but I, I, if you are in particular thinking about a, um, a, a, G, a nominal GDP target or the like, I can imagine circumstances that depending on the nature of the shocks, if you're particularly interested in these financial booms, which is what I am interested in, that could actually make matters worse as opposed to make uh, matters better. Um, so I, I would, if you, if you believe as I do, that in a world which is characterized by relatively liberalized financial markets, by a real globalization, which puts to my mind a sort of downward pressure on, on aggregate prices, um, if you th in a world in which uh, effectively are going to some extent back to the pre-Second World War and uh, the 1920s and, and further back in history in terms of the how the economy works. I do think that in such a world, these financial booms and busts, which have reappeared, because they were not there before in the in the early uh, in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, I think that these financial booms and busts are one of the key problems that we need to face. And so that's why I'm arguing for something that directly addresses them. And in order to address them, let me stress, it's not just monetary policy. It is not just prudential policy, be it micro or macroprudential policy. I just talked about macroprudential because it's the one that is typically uh, talked about in this context. But I think that there is a big role also of fiscal policy. If you think, for example, of what happened in, um, in uh, Spain or what happened in Ireland, just to quote two examples out of many, during these financial booms, the fiscal accounts are extraordinarily flattered. You know, the, in the case of Spain and in the case of Ireland, they had falling government debt to GDP ratios. They had so-called cyclical adjusted and sometimes not even cyclical adjusted budget surpluses. And then all of a sudden, everything disappeared like that once the financial bust occurred. And in fact, some of the work that we have been doing to try to adjust uh, fiscal positions and, and to, to measure potential output and to f adjust fiscal positions on the basis of what happens to these financial cycle variables has proved quite uh, actually in demand among the fiscal uh, authorities that are now being put in place in Europe, for instance. I think we're out of time, unfortunately. We've got to call our next panel up, but... Uh Thank you again, Claudia, for a very interesting talk. <laughs>